Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Today our text is Luke 23, verses 44 through 46. The title of the text, The Darkest Day. Franklin Roosevelt famously said that December 7th, 1941 would be a day that would live in infamy. And of course, he was right. That is the day, of course, in which the Japanese attacked the United States Naval Fleet anchored in Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, leading to our entrance into World War II. There are other dates in history that are equally infamous. Can you believe that in less than six months we will mark the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on our land simply known today as, as 9-11? And we've been working through over a year now on some dark days of our own in this country. But as horrific as those two dates I mentioned earlier and even as difficult as the last year has been on all of us, I contend that none of those is the darkest day in human history. That title, that designation is to be reserved for the event that we are going to read about just now in Luke 23, verses 44 through 56. Of course, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. Let's read it. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for the spectacle when they observed what had happened began to return beating their breast. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandments. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and hearing of this, his word. Now next Sunday, Christians the world over will gather in buildings such as this to celebrate the most glorious day in history, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. But today, let's look at the darkest day. We've seen many ironies so far in this 23rd chapter of Luke associated with the passion of Jesus here, I think, is another. You remember that many of the citizens of Israel, including the governor, a man by the name of Herod Antipas, wanted only one thing from Jesus. They wanted him to perform signs and wonders. They wanted to be entertained by him. And Jesus, of course, the night of his arrest, refused even to speak to Herod, let alone entertain him. In fact, at one point in Jesus' ministry, knowing the hearts of the people and their desire for entertainment, he declared that no sign would be given them except the sign of Jonah. 
sign of Jonah, of course, was that Jonah was three days in the belly of a fish. This spoke prophetically of the death, burial, and resurrection in three days of the Lord Jesus. But the irony is that upon the death of Jesus, God the Father gave not one, but several great signs. But rather than entertaining the doubters, it caused them to quake in fear. And so let's begin by looking at some of these signs and wonders. Two of them are found in verse 44 and 45. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. So the sixth hour by Jewish recollection of time is noon. And so the ninth hour would be three in the afternoon. And so this is the middle of the day. From 12 noon to 3 p.m. is when the sun would be highest in the sky, producing the most light. But in that very moment, everything went dark. There's no physical or natural phenomenon to explain this. This was an act of God. Now, we're not told exactly why God caused it to be dark, but I think we can make a pretty good guess. Darkness is a sign of grief. It's a sign of um, the absence of, of truth. And here, truth personified had come into the world and wicked men had snuffed out his life. This is uh, an act of God. Also, we see some others. Uh, when I say that the murder of Jesus was the darkest day in human history, that is true both figuratively and literally. It is a dark day because the only truly innocent person that ever lived is put to death. It is also a dark day because God caused the sun to stop shining for a three hour period. Now, when we put all the four gospels together, we see there were other signs accompanying the death of Jesus. Luke mentions one here, the tearing of the veil. Now, you know that when the temple was constructed, they also constructed a veil that was to separate the temple from the Holy of Holies. You know that the Holy of Holies was the place where the mercy seat was, the Ark of the Covenant. And the high priest could only enter one day a year on the Day of Atonement and sprinkle blood upon the mercy seat, atoning for the sins of the people. And this veil was much more than a privacy curtain. It was four inches thick. It was dark. It was 60 feet tall. And we're told that it was ripped from the top to the bottom. Of course, this is not only a sign of, of great grief, it's a sign of um, the end of the Old Covenant. Now, in the Old Testament, oftentimes when people are struck by a sudden tragedy or overcome by grief, they'll rip their clothing. And this veil was ripped, ripped of course, by God himself. It was from top to bottom. No man could do it. Not even a team of oxen could rip this veil apart. This was, again, an act of God. And the point being is that there was no longer a need for the sacrificial system. We now have direct access to the Father. We're told to come with boldness into his presence and make our requests known. We don't have to have a, a priest. We don't have to have a go-between because Christ, the book of Hebrews says, is the once for all sacrifice for sin. But not only was the tearing of the veil, Matthew and Mark tells us there were earthquakes the shaking of the rocks and, and the mountains. In fact, the shaking of the rocks and mountains was so great that the tombs came open. Remember in the Middle East, they did not bury under the ground as we customarily do here in the West. Uh, they used caves, they used hewn out sections of mountains uh, with a stone over the entrance. And uh, these rocks were torn in two. And Matthew tells us, he's the only one of the four gospel writers 
that some of the dead saints came forth alive. They were resurrected and appeared to many others after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, every time I read that, my question is, what happened to them then? <laughs> and we're not told, but we assume that they ascended into heaven in a similar way that Jesus did 40 days later. I think that is just a, a promise to us and a foreshadowing that one day we're going to receive resurrected bodies. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians that uh, those who die in the Lord are going to come forth first when the trumpet of God sounds. And so this is a, another example of the sovereignty of God. Well, those are signs and wonders. Second, we see in verse 46, spirit and body. And Jesus crying with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, the Lord Jesus often quoted scripture. In fact, he quoted scripture throughout his public ministry. In the beginning of his public ministry, after he was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, he was led into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan for 40 days. And on three separate occasions, Satan came to Jesus, offering him a temptation. And in all three cases, Jesus rebuffed the devil with what? Quoted scripture. And here he is quoting scripture again while on the cross. Let's look at Psalm 31 in your Old Testament. Hold your place there in Luke. Turn back quickly to Psalm 31. And this again is a Psalm of David, as many of the Psalms are. And many of the Davidic Psalms are also messianic in nature. They're prophetic, speaking of the coming Messiah, which was still hundreds of years yet in the future. And this is the Psalm that Jesus is quoting. Psalm 31, in you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me quickly. Be to me a rock of strength, a stronghold to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. For your name's sake, you will lead me and guide me. You will pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Now hear this. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. For you have ransomed me, O Lord, God of truth. Now in that verse that Jesus quotes, we are reminded of some interesting things about human beings. Number one is that man is God's highest creation. Now there was a time where that would not be controversial. In recent years, that has changed in the public square. Many people today that you work with and kids you go to school with have been taught that man is no more valuable than any other species, that he's just one of many, not what the Bible teaches. The Bible says only of man can it be said that he was made in the image of God. And only of man is he comprised of body and spirit. My children working on their catechism, one of the first questions that they answer is about the composition of a human being. And it is this, I have a body as well as a spirit. And this is true. And Jesus shows this clearly here. In his body, he died, but his spirit lived on. The body, because of sin's entrance into the world in the Garden of Eden through our first parents, Adam and Eve, has been cursed. We are born with a death sentence. And the older we get, the more we realize that's true. The body wears out. It gets tired and achy and eventually dies. But the spirit is eternal. Unfortunately, the spirit is the real person. Your spirit is the real you. It is immaterial that it is not composed of flesh and blood and hair and 
teeth, but it is immortal. That is, it will never die. This saying, into your hands I commit my spirit, is the seventh and final saying from Jesus upon the cross. Most of you who grew up in Baptist church have probably heard a sermon series at one time or another called The Seven Sayings from the Cross, uh, in which all the four gospel accounts are put together. And we find there were literally seven quotations of Jesus in the gospel as he was hanging on the cross. Do you remember what the very first one was? That is, what was Jesus' instinctive response to a night of suffering, abuse, slander, and mistreatment? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. That's the very first statement of Jesus on the cross. The second was to the thief that we saw a couple of weeks ago here. When he repented of sin and recognized Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus said to him, today you will be, be with me in paradise. A saying that's not found here in Luke, but in the other gospels is how Jesus took care of his mother, Mary. And he said to John, behold your mother and to Mary, woman, behold your son. And then as Jesus suffering became more intense upon the cross, he again quoted the scripture and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we see probably the most human moment on the cross, Jesus simply said a two word phrase, I thirst. And as his life was leaving his body, he said a three word sentence, declaring victory and success and completion of the Father's mission for him. He simply said, it is finished. And knowing that he had accomplished everything that the Father had intended him to do, he says this phrase found here in Luke 23, Father, unto thy hands I commit my spirit. The King James says he gave up the ghost. That is, he released his spirit from his body and he died. And in Jesus' seven sayings from the cross, we see vividly both his humanity and his deity. See, Jesus, unlike us, has two natures. He's altogether God and yet altogether man. And lots of heresies through the centuries have come about by causing his divine nature and his human nature to somehow be viewed as doing violence to one another. That is, one must be stronger than the other. No, just let the Bible say what it says, that he is man and, and he's God. He is the God man. And we see that clearly here. In his deity, he's forgiving sin. And in his humanity, He's taking care of his mother and longing for a drink of water. But ultimately, he knows that he has completed what he came to do. And so he says, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. Now, what is the implication of that? I think it's very clear. The implication of this verse is that Jesus voluntarily laid down his life for sinners. No man took it from him. In fact, Jesus predicted that. He says, I laid down my life. No man takes it from me. So don't think of Jesus as a pathetic victim this Easter season. He's the victorious king. He's the hero that accomplished his mission completely and totally. And by the way, he only released his spirit at the moment that he chose, not the moment that the Romans chose or the Pharisees of the Sanhedrin chose. He is sovereign even in death. And his death 
was so different than any other that the people had ever seen that they have an incredible response. Let's look at the reaction of the onlookers. Beginning in verse 47, we see the soldiers and the citizens having similar responses. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breast. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance seeing these things. <coughs> Soldiers and citizens. First person we see responding to Jesus' death is a centurion. You know that a century is a hundred years. A centurion is a Roman soldier who's in charge of 100 other soldiers. You became a centurion by proving yourself in battle. So likely this man is a very hardened and grizzled soldier. Maybe it surprises you to know that the person who recognizes Jesus as Messiah is not a well-heeled Pharisee who could quote the Old Testament backwards and forwards. It's a pagan, grizzled Roman soldier. And we see there the miracle work of the Holy Spirit, don't we? God saves who he chooses to save. I believe this man was saved. I believe he was converted on the spot. We see the confession of his mouth. He says, surely this man was innocent. He's not just saying in some generic form that we've killed an innocent guy. That probably happened all the time on Roman crosses. He's saying he was truly innocent. In fact, the book of Mark quotes him as saying this man was righteous. And he goes on to say, surely this man was the son of God. Now, we don't know how much he knew of the gospel, but he knew enough to know that this man was on the cross, not for some crime he had done, but because he claimed to be the son of God. And he is convinced it's true. So I believe we'll see this man in heaven. Now we have another group here, verse 48, simply called the crowds. I called them last week, the hoi polloi, the common people, the easily swayed, the fickle. A few days earlier, they're laying down their coats and palm branches and saying, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here they are now screaming for blood. Now that it's all over, now that Jesus hangs dead upon the cross, their response is somewhat interesting. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, that is return home, beating their breast. Now, what does it mean that they were beating their breast? I think there's two possibilities. One is... I, when we are overexposed to violence, whether it's through the media or in person, we sort of take on an animal instinct. And I think that's probably what happened to that crowd. They got whipped up into a frenzy and it just uh, got away with them. And uh, if you've ever been down to the Fort Worth Zoo, they have an amazing exhibit of silverback gorillas there. And that uh, alpha male gorilla, I've watched him for hours and he's very patient with the other weaker male gorillas until he's had enough. And when he's had enough, they know it because he starts beating his chest and chasing them around and they go into hiding until he's happier. Maybe that's what he's talking about. I really don't think so. I think what he's saying here that they were beating their breast in grief. I said in the Old Testament, when someone's overcome with grief, they often rip their clothing. One of the things they'd also do is to beat their chest and, and put ashes upon their head I don't know that we can say all these people repented of sin. I think we can say this. I think many of those people that day were ashamed for having been part of the killing of an innocent person. 
their consciences were still active enough to know that they had been a part of a great evil. And I suspect because of Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, that many of those people eventually did come to saving faith in Jesus. And then there's a third group. Verse 49 calls them acquaintances and the women. And all his acquaintances and the women were accompanying him from Galilee, were standing at a distance seeing these things. The Bible has a very high view of women. And putting the four Gospels together, we probably can make an educated guess at the names of some of these women, the ones that often traveled with Jesus and the disciples as they went from town to town. One very famous woman who was so thankful for her salvation was Mary Magdalene, who loved Jesus. Then there was a lady simply called the Other Mary. How would you like to be called the Other Mary? But uh, she was likely the mother of one of the other disciples. There was a woman named Salome, who's mentioned several times in the New Testament, who is the mother of James and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples, probably others. The scripture simply says that they were standing at a distance. And don't read too much into that, that they were afraid or ashamed to be associated with Jesus as his disciples had been that night in Gethsemane. I think they were overcome by grief. They, they didn't want to see it up close. They loved Jesus. They were waiting for it to be over so they could honor Jesus by preparing his body. These are the same women at first light on Sunday morning who are going to be there at the tomb and be brokenhearted when they see that Jesus is not there. They assumed something terrible had happened. So speaking of that Sunday morning and the preparation of the body, let's move now to the burial of Jesus. Verse 50. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan in action, a man from Arimathea, city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. He took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in the tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was going to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid and they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. We see here in those seven verses, Sabbath and ceremonies. In the midst of outrageous blasphemy by the crowds, outrageous blasphemy and incredible sin, the Lord had a remnant. Isn't that just like the Lord? When we look throughout the Bible, even when humans have gotten to the lowest point we think they could possibly get, there's always a faithful few. We see that in the book of Genesis. God said he looked out over humanity and all their heart was to do evil continually. They just sat around making up new ways to sin. And God decided he was gonna destroy everything on the planet with one exception. That faithful remnant family, Noah, and his three sons and, and their family. We see Job as an example of a righteous and devout man surrounded by sinners. And in this case, we see Joseph of Arimathea, mentioned in all four gospels, a member of the council, it says, that is a member of the Sanhedrin. He was there, one of the 70, when they voted to put Jesus to death. And the scripture has a 
parentheses here. Parenthetically, Luke writes, he had not consented to their plan and action. As far as we know, he was the only one who did not consent. And scripture describes him here as a righteous and a good man. And so being a righteous and a good man and knowing that Jesus was an innocent man, he wanted to do something to honor the Lord. And he did the only thing he knew to do. He went to Pilate and requested the body of Jesus. Now this was an unusual request because the bodies of criminals were often just thrown on a garbage dump to offer even further indignity to their death. Pilate, seemingly in a gracious mood, probably because he knew Joseph of Arimathea as a wealthy and influential man in the city, consented. He allowed him to take down the body. And scripture says he wrapped Jesus in a linen cloth. Again, burial customs were very different in the ancient Middle East. People were buried the day of their death. Of course, part of that owing to the climate, heat and humidity, and the fact that they did not have yet embalming technology. And so what they would do is take a body and they would take pounds and pounds of perfume and ointment and wrap up that body as a mummy to preserve it. And then they would put them in a cave or a hewn out rock and put a rock over the door. The scripture says that he offered his own personal tomb, his family place of burial, which had never been used before. See, entire families were buried in one tomb. And so you, you would buy a piece of property, you would hew out the rocks, you would chisel out shelves for the bodies. And every time a family member died, they would unseal the tomb and the next person was placed in until it was full. But this was a tomb that had never been used before. And by the way, we don't know if Joseph Arimathea knew it. I, I doubt he did, but he was fulfilling prophecy. Isaiah 53, 9, speaking of the suffering servant, you know that passage well, by his stripes we are healed, predicts an incredible detail about the burial of the Messiah, that he would be buried with a rich man. Jesus didn't own any personal property. The scripture says he didn't have a place to lay his head. And yet in God's sovereignty, he provided for him to be buried, as Isaiah predicted, in a rich man's tomb. And so here we have uh, in the midst of depravity, and blasphemy, a sign of respect and honor and compassion. As I thought about this week, friends, we live in a world that is known for its depravity, its sinfulness, its blasphemy. And I think that's what Jesus meant when he says, you are the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth. We're to be a little glimmer of compassion and hope and truth in a lost and dying world. God always has his remnant. Now we see here that this was leading up to the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath was an incredibly important day in the life of Jewish people in the ancient world and today among Orthodox Jews. All the week leads up to Saturday, the Sabbath. But it may interest you to know that the, the concept of the Sabbath did not begin with God's giving of the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments. Well, the Ten Commandments is, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, but the Sabbath was around long before Moses. In fact, we trace the origin of the Sabbath all the way back to the book of Genesis. God created everything in heaven and earth in six literal days. And on the seventh day, the scripture says he rested from his labor. 
Now, we need to think very clearly about what that means and what it doesn't mean. Does it mean that God was so worn out and tired after six days of creating things that he just needed a day off? No, God's not like us. His ways are higher than our ways, the scripture says. God's power and authority is not diminished as he creates. But he gave us an example, knowing that we are weak and frail, knowing that we would need a time of rest and recuperation and reflection. He gave us the Sabbath. In fact, it was a gracious gift from God to all humanity, not just Jewish people, not just Christian people. The world over, just like marriage is a grace of God, the Sabbath is a gift to all humanity. It's been abused and misused, and yet in its pristine form, it's a great and a marvelous blessing. That's why Jesus was so upset with the Pharisees who were perverting the meaning of the Sabbath. He simply said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And so the Pharisees, generation after generation, kept commenting on that simple law adding more rules and more regulations until the time of Jesus, most Jewish people dreaded the Sabbath. It was the worst day of the week. It was drudgery. It was monotony. It was impossible to keep the Pharisees happy. And Jesus said, of course, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden, who are burdened down with rules and regulations because I will give you what? Rest. Sabbath. That's what Jesus meant when he said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Well, unbelievably almost, these Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, though they had just been guilty of murder, not just murder of anyone, but murder of God, their first thought is not to repent of that, but it is to keep the Sabbath. And so they want to make sure Jesus is taken down from the cross before dark so they won't violate the Sabbath, so they won't miss out on any of the ceremonies that coming weekend. You see the hypocrisy. You see the sadness of their misunderstanding. But these women actually are keeping the Sabbath out of love. They wanted, and I'm sure their gut instinct was to forget about the Sabbath and pour out this perfume on Jesus and prepare his body, but because they loved God. And Jesus told them, remember, that until he comes again, not one jot or tittle of the law was to be laid aside. They remembered those words, I take it, and so they did not come to the tomb until the Sabbath was over. Look at what it says in verse 56. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. They were doing as, as God instructed. Now, what does that have to say to us? Well, here we are, seven days from Resurrection Sunday. And so we have a period of reflection similar to a Sabbath. You see, the, the, the darkest day was the day of Jesus' crucifixion, the most glorious day. Easter Sunday morning, and in between, we have this Sabbath day of reflection. And so I'm calling upon the members of First Baptist Church of Keller to remember and reflect over the next seven days. Remember the great love wherewith he loved us, dying on the cross for our sins. Remember the great sinfulness of our sin, that we are guilty as any of these Pharisees or any of these Romans. And yet he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not 
what they're doing. Now, we have put together as a staff some things to help you reflect this week. Beginning tomorrow morning, you're going to receive in your email box a video devotional. And each day, you're going to receive another video devotional as we come towards Good Friday. And then on Friday of next week, we're going to gather in this room at 7 o'clock to sing praises to the Lord Jesus, to take the Lord's Supper together, to hear Scripture read, and then we're going to go out into the night and await the most glorious day, Easter Sunday morning. And then bright and early Sunday morning at 8 a.m. this coming week. And then at 9.30 and 11, we're going to gather in this room with the entire church family. And we're going to rejoice because Jesus is risen. So I hope you'll make plans to be here for that next week. But if you don't know Jesus here today... Easter's just going to be another day. It's going to be another opportunity for you to overindulge your own lust and desire. But it doesn't have to be. If you're here today and you know him not, you can before you leave this room. And you certainly can before Easter comes in seven days. How do you have that relationship with Jesus? Well, the Bible says by simple faith. Faith is simply believing what Jesus said about himself is true. Believing the promises of God. That's why I say I believe that centurion we'll see in heaven because he believed what Jesus said about himself. He is the son of God. He's righteous. He's sinless. And then you despair of anything good within yourself and repent of sins. You're going in this direction. You turn and, and go the other direction. You, and you do that by calling on the name of the Lord. Paul says it this way in Romans 10 and 9. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. See, people around you today are saved not because they figured something out you've been missing out on or not because they did enough good deeds to outweigh their bad deeds. Every person in this room who's a child of God is so because the Holy Spirit of God convicted them that they needed a Savior. And he opened our blind eyes to see that Jesus is that Savior and that he did that all on his own. Those women who watched Jesus from a distance couldn't do one thing to help Jesus save the world. He did that on his own. That's why he came. And you, friend, and I can't do one thing to assist Jesus in our salvation. We simply receive it as a gift as it is intended. Let's go to him and thank him for that marvelous truth. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and thank you for the gift of salvation made possible through the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, we are excited as seven days from now, we'll gather not just in this room with Christians that we know and love who live near us, but with Christians the world over. The greatest day, not only on the calendar, but in human history, Lord, we've been reminded today, though, that before that glory came darkness. Father, we are so thankful that you were pleased and satisfied by the death of your son, that he completed everything to minute detail all the way up into where he would be buried, as was predicted in the Old Testament. And so, Father, I pray if there's even one in the sound of my voice who has never believed on Jesus, confessed him as Lord and Savior, that before Easter comes, that many would become citizens of heaven. Lord, we'll rejoice when that happens and give you all praise for which you're due. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. <laughs>
thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.